0: Hear from you. You would remind us of your grace and your goodness, and we would worship you through the reading and preaching and studying of your word. Lord, we love you and trust you in all things. Amen. Open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 33. We have been in Ezra and Nehemiah, but every year we come to this season of advent and we take a, uh, basically a month to remember the coming of Christ, both the first and the second, uh, which is a delight for us because we know that there is much to look forward to and much to see. So, um, as we read this morning, this is a great text to jump off in with, uh, with regard to where we are in Ezra, because much of what he says here deals directly with the feeling of the people who were returning to the land in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. So let's read together Jeremiah chapter 33. We're going to read the whole chapter, um, and then we'll dive right in. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time while he was still shut up in the court of the guard. Thus says the Lord... Who made heaven, who made the earth, and who formed it to establish it, the Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer you, and will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the house of this city and the houses of the kings of Judah that were torn down to make a defense against the siege mounds, and against the sword. They are coming to fight. They're coming in to fight against the Chaldeans and to fill them with dead bodies of men who shall strike down in my anger and my wrath, for I have hidden my face from this city because of their, all their evil. Behold, I will bring to it health and healing and will. And will, I will heal them and reveal to them abundance of prosperity and security. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me. And I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise, and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity that I have provided for it. Thus says the Lord, in this place of which you say it is a waste without man or beast, in the cities of of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man or inhabitant or beast, there shall be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts For the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as at first says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in this place that is waste without man or beast, and in all of its cities, there shall again be habitations of shepherds resting their flocks, In the cities of the hill country, in the cities of Shephelah, and in the cities of the Negev, in the city in the land of Benjamin, the place the places about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, flocks shall again pass under the hands of the one who counts them, says the Lord. Behold. The days are coming declares the Lord when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah in those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David and he shall execute judgment and right he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land in those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel and the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to burn burn burnt offerings and grain offerings and to make sacrifices forever the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that the day day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David and my servant shall be broken so that he shall not have a son to reign on the throne and my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers as... The host of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured. So I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant and the Levitical priests who minister to me. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not observed these people, what these people are saying? The Lord has rejected the two clans that he chose thus. They have despised my people so that they, know they are no longer a nation in their sight. Thus says the Lord, If I have not established my covenant with the day and the night and the fixed order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and David. My servant will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. May God add His blessing to the reading and the hearing of His Word. Now there's a lot in this text. There's a ton. There's a lot of deep, heavy theology. There's eschatology. There's, uh, there's symbolism. There's all kinds of shadows and things. And I just want you to know, I do not plan on covering all of those. So... We are going to rejoice and worship the Lord together as we read through this. Just know that there is much to talk about in this text, and you are welcome to talk about it all you want afterwards and hang out, and we will, ch- we will chat, but not everything is going to be covered. Um, that's a big chunk of passage, and this is what we are going to cover. So, let's go here. This is the outline that we're going to follow today. God's. First, God's immediate response to Jeremiah. Second, he's got this imagery of the wedding feast. Third, he's got the shepherd in verses 12 through 13. And then fourth, he's got the king and the priest, the king-priest in verses 14 through 18. And then he's got verse 19 through 20, which is what I'm titling, All Upon His Character, or all of these things hinge upon the character and nature of, Of God. All of these previous statements hinge on the character and nature of God. So that's our outline. We're going to go through it pretty easily. First, let's look at the setting. Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time while he was still shut up in the court of the guard. So Jeremiah is receiving this word while he's under essentially a house arrest. He's kind of being held in the court of the guard. Remember, Jeremiah is the least liked prophet. No one likes Jeremiah. He preaches for 40 years and has one convert. And that one convert was a paid scribe. So he might not have been a convert. The one convert is a paid scribe. Only one person is ever excited or helpful to Jeremiah. And that is a guy named Ebed-Melech, also known as the servant of the king. Right, or the servant king, this guy comes and gets Jeremiah out of a well that he's been thrown into, a broken cistern that he's been thrown into, he's been beaten up and thrown into this well. Now, we talk a great deal about prophets, and how great in our culture, and how great the prophets were, and how wonderful the prophets were. I want you to get a picture of Jeremiah. He is a court prophet who's hired to work in the court. He has a job as part of the court of the king, but he is the least liked of all the court prophets. He's the least liked. Nobody listens to him. He preaches and prophesies. He goes to the king and offers counsel, and he's the one that no one likes to have in a meeting because his hand goes up first. You know that guy? You have a meeting, and, and he's real nice. He's, he's a humble guy, but he's off in the back. And you have this meeting, and everybody in the room is excited about this one thing. And he raises his hand to point out the one thing nobody wants pointed out. That's Jeremiah. Jeremiah is there. Also, Jeremiah was often youngest in the room. He was often the one that was the youngest in the room. So nobody gave him credence. Nobody gave him credence. He he has no social media following. He's got no, no viral videos. No one likes... Jeremiah, the only thing that happens with Jeremiah is false prophets rise up and get the ear of the people while he stands back going, don't listen to that guy. And they listen anyway. Jeremiah is a prophet of sorrow. He writes a whole book, Lamentations, of him crying. That's the word lamentation means. And he cries the whole book. Forty years of ministry, one convert, and yet... He's one of the most faithful prophets in all of history, who the Lord ascribes as wonderful, as amazing. He's approved of by God. That, let that be a lesson to us that no one, maybe no one will listen. Maybe you'll be thrown into a cistern and rejected. Maybe you'll be under house arrest by presidential guard. Maybe you'll be inconsequential. In the grand, in the the small picture of things, in the the world news, you, you won't have an incredible impact. You'll only have maybe one convert who's a guy you have to pay to do what you ask him to do. Maybe. And maybe that will be you. And I want you to hear, the Lord is pleased with Jeremiah's. Lord is pleased with Jeremiah's. He's not disappointed in Jeremiah's. He's not waiting for you to do something great or big. He's using you where you are, and he used Jeremiah where he was. And so Jeremiah here at the beginning of this text is under a sort of house arrest, uh, kind of an inconsequential house arrest, more like he's been kept in the guards uh, area. He's told you have to stay here, and the city is, has impending doom. The Chaldeans are coming, and everybody knows it, and war is about to be on them. And they all know there's impending doom on the horizon. So we've got this setting of impending doom on the horizon here, and false prophets have the ear of the people. You can see that more in chapter 28, where one of the false prophets actually stands up and takes the lead, and he uh, he is proclaiming peace and favor from the Lord right before impending doom. And so you've got false prophets. Jeremiah's over in the corner going, No, we're all in trouble. We need to repent and believe. And this false prophet's going, No, no, the Lord loves us. We're perfect. We're great. Uh, and then the final thing here in the setting is the people are attempting to satisfy themselves with broken cisterns. This is a theme all throughout the book of Jeremiah that the people have hewn for themselves or dug for themselves wells that are cracked cisterns that are broken. They have the fountain of living water in Yahweh and in the coming Messiah, Jesus. They have the fountain of living water and they have forsaken that fountain for the sake of making their own righteousness and their own religion in order to hewn out for themselves broken cisterns. And so drastic is this imagery that halfway through the book, Jeremiah gets thrown into one of these broken cisterns attempting to drown him. But it's broken, so it's just mud. So he doesn't drown. He's just beaten up at the bottom of the broken cistern. And again, Ebed-Melech has to come and pull him out and drag him out of the cistern. So we see here this dark, impending setting. And And I wanted to point out the setting to you because this isn't much different than where we are. There's these wars and rumors of wars around us. There's impending doom on every corner. If you watch the news for five minutes, we're all going to die tomorrow. right? If you don't watch the news for five minutes, you're actually in a pretty good mood. But if you watch it, we're all in trouble. Impending doom is on the horizon. We have false prophets everywhere. I can't tell you. I'm a pastor. Of course, you all know that I'm a pastor and we, so on Instagram and on Facebooks and YouTubes and all the other oops, all those things, I get constant flood of viral pastor videos because they think that because I'm in pastoral ministry and because I'm listed pastor, that's what I want to see. And I have to tell you, a lot of them are false prophets and very bad and not just bad as in like heretical or, or wrong, but just awful. They're comically bad. They're so bad that I have a small group of friends that I send these viral videos to. That say, and I say on today's episode, "If this is why we can't have nice things," and then I attach the clip, and uh, and we go back and forth. But they're so they're that bad, and there's a ton of them. There's false prophets everywhere. You can meet them anywhere. They are on your feeds of whatever feeds you have. If you don't have feeds, praise the Lord that you have learned contentment and you don't have to scroll through nonsense. That is great. Good for you. So false prophets abound and the people are attempting to satisfy themselves with broken cisterns. This is very much our culture. People are attempting to satisfy themselves with anything else, so much so that they cast off all historical uh, theology. They cast off all uh, family structure theology. They, they, there's a whole movement, deconstruction. There's this whole movement of, of casting off what is old in order to try and find ourselves, and in casting off what is old, they cast off truth. And it's ridiculous and awful. And dangerous. That's where we are. Broken cisterns trying to satisfy ourselves. And then I believe in 10 years, we're going to see a lot of the results of broken cisterns and quiet Jeremiah's in the background being thrown into them. So. This is the setting. I'm glad to give you such an uplifting and exciting setting as we go into the word of God, because while the setting that we are in seems so bleak, the answer is found in the word. The answer is found in what Christ has done, what Christ is doing, and what Christ will do. And that's what we see here. So Jeremiah 33, uh, God's immediate response is here in verses two and three. Let's read together. It says, thus says the Lord who made the earth, The Lord who formed it to establish it. The Lord is his name. Three times there, the Tetragrammaton is replaced because of an emphasis. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord. He is saying, Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. Or if you're from the Eastern idea, Jehovah, Jehovah, Jehovah. You've got this Lord, Lord, Lord repeated. Why? Because the answer is in his name. Jeremiah is locked up. He's Looking at impending doom. The world seems to be falling down. The walls of Jerusalem seem to be falling down around him. And he is looking for some sort of hope. And where's that hope? That hope is in the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord. Who he is. The hope is in the name of the Lord. He says, call to me and I will answer you. I will tell you great and hidden things you have not known. Or I will tell you great and unspeakable things that you have not known. The word there is is this word that means it's unfathomable. I will tell you things that you cannot possibly even grasp. It's beautiful, right? Especially when we think about how heavy theology is and how hard it is to grasp some of the things that some of these great theologians have said in the past that they talk to you for... You, you read a page and you just have to close the book and think for three hours. Right? Those those deep and heavy theologians. these, these, God calls those things deep and unthinkable, unsearchable. He, He calls them things that are unfathomable. So if God tells me that it's unfathomable, it's okay for me to struggle to understand it. And it's okay for you to struggle to understand it. We struggle best when we struggle together. So he says... Uh, here, the answer to Jeremiah's setting is pretty straightforward. One, the Lord is creator and self-existence. You all know the name of God, Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton, means I be, I am, right? We translate it I am because I be is in proper English. But it's this, uh, it's a its a—it's a powerful, it's the It's the verb hayah, which is to be. And it's this form of hayah that is is is. Awkward in Hebrew to kind of discern. It means, I exist. I simply am. So when Moses says, who do I say sent them? In uh, Exodus chapter 3, who, who do I say sent me to them? God responds with, I am. I just, I just exist. I'm so high above and far above that, that I just am. There's no time over me, there's no law over me, there's no rules on me. I am, I exist, I am simply in existence. He is the Lord. And second, He's the Creator. He created all things. So, the answer to our setting here from the outset, the immediate answer is to remember that God is the Creator of all things and that He is. Second thing is that the Lord hears, cares, and He knows. He says, call to me and I will answer. In verse 3, call to me and I will answer you and I will teach you and I will tell you great and unspeakable things that you have not known. I will tell you great and hidden things, unsearchable, that you have not known. You, you haven't known these things, but the Lord does. The Lord knows these things. He says, call to me. That's an indication that the God of the universe cares to hear your voice when you need Him. Oh, think about that. Think about that. The God of the universe cares to hear your voice when you need Him. This is the heart of every father I've ever met. We love to hear our children call to us when they need us. We love to hear our children call to us when they need us. Even if it's inconvenient or unfortunate for us, I don't want them calling to someone else. I want them calling to me. Call to me, and I will answer. God tells you, His children, call to me, and I will answer you. And I'll answer you. He he cares. He, He hears he cares. I will answer you. He will answer you. Jesus says that which of you, being a father, if his child asked for a loaf of bread, would give him a rock? Or if he asked for a fish, would give him a snake? No, nobody would. That's ridiculous. If your kid asks you for a loaf of bread, unless it's a like dad joke where you're like, oh, but you're going to give him bread if he's hungry. And you're going to give him fish if he's hungry. You're not going to give him a snake that will kill him or a rock that he can't feast on. Like, you're going to give him those things. Which of you, being fathers, would do that? And then it, then he goes on to say, how much more will your heavenly Father give you what you need? How much more? How much more? This is it. Call to me, and I will answer. He will answer. He will give you what you need. And he knows. He knows. He's going to tell you of great and unsearchable things. He's going to tell you things that are great and unsearchable. And then he promises throughout the rest of that passage there in verses 1 through 9, he promises that the Lord will restore the people. That's the generalization of those next verses 4 through 9. That he will restore his people. He will cleanse them from sin. He will free them from guilt. And he will restore them. So he will restore his people. The Lord will restore. Now we've been in Ezra and Nehemiah and they've been in captivity and exile for 70 years and they come back into the land and they rebuilt the temple and all these things. I want you to hear Ezra and Nehemiah looking over this, the people who have been going back in the land, the people we've been walking with in those stories, those people would look at this and go, we're being restored. We're being restored. And as we've studied through Ezra and Nehemiah, we've had the constant reminder that they still need Jesus. They still need Jesus. Even in the restoration. (coughs) So we read this text and let's let's understand that the people of Jeremiah's day were going, okay, there's hope. There's hope coming in. In the face of impending doom, there's hope. There's God is our Creator. He's our Lord. He hears, He cares, and He knows. He will restore us. There's hope here, and yet they still need Jesus. Brings us to the next place, verses 10 through 11, the wedding, the wedding feast imagery. So thus says the Lord, in this place of which you say it is waste without man or beast in the cities of Judah, And in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without man or inhabitant or beast, there shall be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as at first, says the Lord. So here, God responds uh, even further. First, we have that immediate response to Jeremiah. And then God begins to talk about great and unsearchable things. Things that are distant and strong. Even in the midst of that first response, let's be fair. In the midst of that first response, there are great and un- unsearchable things as well. We're just moving fast. So, we have here in verse 10 and 11 more of these great and unsearchable things. The Lord here first in verse 10 takes what is waste and makes it beautiful. Look at that. There in verse 10. In this place of which you say it is waste without man or beast and the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man or inhabitant or beast there shall be heard again the voices of mirth and the voice of gladness. The Lord takes what is waste and mourning and he turns it to something beautiful. First, the Lord makes them beautiful. The Lord makes them beautiful. He resurrects. This is, this is one of the principles of Christianity. Of really, of the Bible. That the Lord does not discard and waste. But rather, resurrects life from death. Resurrects life from death from death and this is modeled from the very beginning where he takes dirt to make man there's an emphasis there he takes dirt to make the man he does not speak him into existence like he did everything else he takes dirt fashions a man and then blows into his nostrils the breath of life he takes from dirt and makes man he he takes from wasteland and makes Man, he takes from emptiness and brings wholeness. He takes from the vacuum and brings life and sustenance and substance. That's that phrase at the very beginning of Genesis, by the way, where it says the earth was formless and void, or tohu vabohu. It means lacking value and lacking substance. The, the earth had no value, and no substance. It was empty in non-existence. It was unre- The correct term would be it's unreality and lacking substance. So it had no reality, and it had no value. And then what we see in the very second half of the verse in Scripture of Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, is that the Spirit of the Lord hovers over the waters. Before that, it was darkness was over the deep, and the Spirit of the Lord hovers over the waters. The Spirit, in essence, bringing definition and life. So what we have here, from the outset of creation, is an understanding that God brings life from wasteland God brings beauty from that which was destroyed from that which was desolate he resurrects people remember Paul speaking in first Corinthians talks about the folly of the word of God he does not he does not do what the world thinks should happen the world sees a wasteland and goes we'd better move on we'd better discard this or the world sees something broken and says this needs to be replaced entirely. God sees something broken and says, I'm going to make it new. I'm going to resurrect it. I'm going to bring life to that which was dead. I'm going to bring life into the soul that was broken and weak. I'm going to bring life where there is no life at all. That's what God does. And so we see Paul talking about it in 1 Corinthians, folly to the world. Jesus talks about this kind of faith with children. Children. He says, you have to have the faith Of a child. God uses fishermen. Torah school dropouts. To make his team. In the gospels. He uses guys who failed Torah school. You know they failed Torah school. Because there's all kinds of hints throughout the gospel. That they failed Torah school. That they didn't make it. That they weren't good enough to be among the Pharisees. Or in the temple education system. They were all dropouts. I mean the one that's closest to being successful is Nathaniel, and he's underneath a tree reading evidently because he couldn't be with the rabbis reading. Right? You got a zealot who ran away from society in order order to make his name. You got a tax collector who rejected his own religious upbringing. You got Peter... And James and John, who are these rough-cut fishermen, who, by the way, John only recorded as speaking outside of the Gospel of John one time. And what does he say? Jesus is now when we're going to burn down fire on the Samaritans. That's the one time he talks. Isn't Isn't it great to know that the disciple whom Jesus loved is that one? We've got this. Pictures of Jesus taking what is broken and using them. He uses prostitutes and tax collectors. He changes them to be people of God. He rescues people who are broken and lowly, not the people who have it all together. Indeed, Jesus came for the sick, not for the healthy, not for the well. He came for the broken and the sick and the contrite. And the quicker we will learn that we are all broken and contrite, the better. He says he will turn mourning, verse 11, he turns mourning into gladness, the house, the voice of mirth, And the voice of gladness will return. This is the picture in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 3, and in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 13, that he turns our mourning into gladness. He turns our mourning into gladness. And then in the book of Esther, verse 22, in chapter 9, verse 22, in the book of Esther, chapter 9, verse 22, this literally happens. He literally turns mourning into gladness. So Jeremiah here is prophesying... These things, and he says it in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33, that there will be mourning and gladness. And in Esther's time, that 60 year period between Ezra chapter 5 and chapter 6, that 60 year period, this literally happens where the people who are mourning suddenly get turned into gladness because of what the Lord has done, because the Lord restores the fortunes of Israel, because he rescues them. The Lord will fill his people. With joy, the Lord takes wasteland and makes them the the Lord will bring joy from silent sorrow. So we have here the Lord will fill his people with joy like a wedding feast. Look at look at the bridegroom here. The voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride will be restored. The voice of those who sing and they will bring offerings. Jesus is first. It's not an accident that Jesus is first. recorded miracle, is at a wedding. Jesus cares about weddings, and this is somehow important, that there's a wedding feast at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book. When Jesus starts his miracle, it's at a wedding feast at Cana. When Jesus returns in Revelation 19, right before Revelation 20, when he sets up a thousand-year reign, right before then, there's a wedding feast. He has a wedding feast. Jesus has parables where he tells us to look for wedding feasts. In Matthew 22 and in Luke 12 and in Luke 14, He tells us there's a wedding feast that you're supposed to be part of and looking towards. There's wedding feasts that are going to come. The Lord happens to show His grace and His mercy and the future hope through this idea of a wedding feast that's coming. A wedding feast in which we will rejoice with the Word of God and the Kingdom of God. This happens literally again. The Lord will fulfill the joy of, of the people. He will fill the people with joy. This happens again, literally, in Ezra. They get filled with joy at one point. They scream and they cheer. And it's so loud that the, the enemies are alerted. They're filled with joy. And that, in Ezra, that happens, when that happens in Ezra, it's a shadow of what's to come. It's a shadow of what will happen on that last day when we will see him coming in the clouds and rejoice. It was a shadow then of what would happen with Jesus coming on the earth when the shepherds and the angels would sing for joy. It was a shadow of the the wise men coming to Jesus. It was a shadow of all of those things. It's a shadow of Christ being revealed that we would delight and have joy and be filled with joy and joy unspeakable and full of glory. It was a shadow of those things. In addition, the Lord bringing what is waste and making it beautiful. He also brings joy from silent sorrow. I want you to think about Simeon and Anna and the inconsequential prophet and the inconsequential uh, prophetess, as she's called in Luke. The These... In Luke chapter 2, and how they rejoice to see the Lord. He brings joy from their silent sorrow, where they've been quietly waiting in the temple. And they finally get to see Jesus. The advent of God's salvation and their rejoicing. Mary and Elizabeth both burst into song when they hear of the prophecy of Jesus coming. And when they see that he is physically there. Indeed, when the baby leaps in the womb, they rejoice. They rejoice. Angels end 400 years of waiting with a song of worship. It's 400 years thereabouts from when the temple is completed in Nehemiah to when Jesus shows up thereabouts. It's about 400 years. It was about 400 years when the people were enslaved in Egypt to when Moses shows up for them to be rescued. That's not an accident. That's not an accident. Jesus brings life and brings salvation and freedom from captivity. About 400 years. The Lord brings sorrow. Brings joy from sorrow. The Lord resources the praises of the people. Look there at the end. He says, uh, voices in verse... Uh, Eleven, He says, as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord, the voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts for the Lord is good for his steadfast love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as at first says the Lord. The Lord restores the land so that the people of God can bring praises before God Almighty. This is beautiful. God resources your praise and offerings. He gives you the resources to praise Him with. He resources your praise and offerings. They are able... I want you to think about this. For, for years, for 70 years, the people have not been able to bring sacrifice before the Lord. They've been in exile. And then you come to Ezra and Nehemiah, and they set up the sacrificial offering, and they all of a sudden are able to sacrifice. For 400 years, there's silence... Not complete silence. There's, there's kind of this uh, waiting. And then Jesus comes and all of a sudden shepherds are able to bring offerings before the Lord. With nothing to bring, shepherds, the lowest caste in society, are able to bring offerings before the Lord. Indeed, the poor, broken, and lame throughout the Gospel of John are able to bring praise before the Lord because the Lord resources the praises of the people who give to Him who give offering to Him, who, who praise Him. He brings value to the praise of the poor and the lowly and the people who have nothing. He brings value to them. He brings resources to them to bring offerings. And they are able to bring offerings. Sometimes we feel as though we have nothing to give to the Lord. Sometimes we feel as though we're just spinning our wheels and there's nothing for us to give to the Lord. I want you very plainly to hear this. The Lord resources your praise. You praise him. He delights. You bring what you have, and he uses it. You're like the kid with the fishes and loaves. Bring what you have, and he uses it. You're like the little drummer boy in that old song that I loved until I was about 10, right? The drummer boy that brings, he's got nothing to bring, but he brings his drumming. If you're you're like the widow who brings the mite and drops it before the Lord, you're you're like these people. You feel like you have nothing to give, but I tell you, you have more to give than anyone who has millions. You have more value than those who are self-sufficient and give small portions. You are you are valuable to the Lord. He resources your give. You have something to bring to Him because of this wedding feast. You can bring offerings. So they are able to bring offerings and their right relationship is restored before the Lord. He restores their fortunes. In Romans chapter 5, verse 2, it uses this phrase, we stand in grace. You don't bow in grace. You don't fall down prostrate in grace. You stand in grace. In His grace in which we stand, we are able to stand before the Lord. And then in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, you are to bring an acceptable offering before the Lord, which is your life, a sacrificial offering before the Lord. Now, verse 12 through 13, he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, in this place that is waste, without man or beast, in all And in all of the cities there shall again be habitations of shepherds resting their flocks in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the Shephelah, and in the cities of the Negev, in the land of Benjamin, in the, place, the places about Jerusalem, and all the cities of Judah. Flocks shall again pass under the hand of the one who counts them, says the Lord. So we've got the shepherd next. We just read that. He is our shepherd. The land, one, shall be full. The land is going to be full. He is our shepherd and he will fill the entire land. Second, he counts the sheep by touch. I love this imagery. It's the same imagery Jesus uses in John chapter 10 when he says, I am the door. You understand when you brought in your sheep at night to be counted, there was a man at the door who would count the sheep. He would count the sheep to go in to the pasture, to the door. And he knew how many there were supposed to be. And he'd count them. And the easiest way to count them in the dark is to touch them. Touch each one. One, two, three, four. All the way until you get all of them in the pen. And then you close the door. Jesus says, I am the door. You come in through me. You come in through me. He's the one counting. He's the one counting the sheep. He's the one making sure that they're there. In John chapter 10, verse 7. In John chapter 10, verse 11. He says, I am the shepherd, the good one. I'm not just any shepherd, I'm the good shepherd, the shepherd, the good shepherd. He is the good one for your good. He's the shepherd who brings you in and out of pasture. And then remember the prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 34 through 36, where he says, I will be their shepherd and they will be my people. And I will give them a new heart and a new life I will put within them. And he says, I will sprinkle them with clean water and I will make them clean and they will be mine and I will be theirs. Jesus is our good shepherd. He's the fulfillment of this. He's the one who counts them as they come in. He's the one who knows them. He's the one who who brings peace to a war-torn place. They've said, in this place that is waste, without man or beast, in all of its cities, there shall again be habitations of shepherds and their sheep. And we've got this Phrase. He will bring peace. He will bring peace to a wasteland. For in Him, all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. Sorry, through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Colossians chapter one verse twenty. Jesus brings peace to a waste, destroyed wasteland. Second. And let there be peace. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Colossians chapter 3, verse 15. You have peace of Jesus in your heart. He brings peace to us as our good shepherd. He brings peace to us. And then we have this one. For He Himself is our peace. I don't know if you can make that any clearer. That you want peace in life, you find it in Jesus. Ephesians two fourteen a He himself, there's the emphasis. He himself is our peace. He's our peace. Don't You don't get peace in anything else. You don't get peace in your spouse. You don't get peace in your kids. You don't get peace in the world around you. You don't get peace in your work. You don't get peace in your play. You don't get peace in leisure. You get peace in Jesus. That's it. And if He doesn't rule over every other area of your life, those areas will be out of of peace. They will be discord. They will be in discord together. He Himself is our peace. He Himself is our peace. So we've got God's immediate response, then the wedding feast and the shepherd, and now we look at the king, the priest. The king-priest. Behold, The days are coming, verse 14. Behold, the days are coming. I love that. Just pause right there just for a moment and and think about it. The days are coming. They're plural days and they are coming. They're plural days and they are coming. The days are plural and are is active. They are on their way. So Jeremiah is tied up and and he's not tied up. He's kind of under house arrest in this uh, court of the guards and God tells him the days are coming. This is a long process. There's lots of days and they are coming. They're coming. There's a certainty here that they are coming. And then he says, when I will fulfill my promises, when I will fulfill the promise that I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah in those days. And at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice in the land. Oh, this is where it starts to get exciting. I will fulfill my promises, And the question becomes what promises? First one, there's a king on the throne forever. Second Samuel chapter seven, verse 16. Repeat it again in those other passages. There's a king that will sit on the throne of David forever. You will never lack a descendant on the throne. He tells him. Second, a priest. So we 've got the promise of a king on the throne forever, and we 've got the promise of a priest. In Jeremiah 31, 34, in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19, 36, verse 26, and in chapter 37, verse 26, that there will be a priest who will come, who will make atonement for us, who will set everything right, and we will have life and life eternal, because this king-priest has made a way for us to live. The priest who will sanctify us fully. So those are the first two promises, and the final promise there is the branch. And he elaborates... On the branch here, the branch that will spring up from Jesse's root. Now, because I belong to the branch, because I belong to the branch, I have certain things that are about me. Because I belong to the branch that rose up and I believe in Jesus Christ, there are certain things about me. The first one is I'm called, we are called, those of us who trust in Jesus, are called a royal priesthood in First Peter chapter 2, verse 5. We are to offer a more excellent sacrifice than the Levitical sacrifices. We are to offer a more excellent sacrifice than the Levitical sacrifice. This is in Romans 12, 1 and Philippians 4, verse 8. We have a more uh, excellent sacrifice than the sacrifice of blood of lambs and goats and, and bulls. We sacrifice our lives for Him, which is our spiritual act of worship. We are called to a more excellent temple. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21, indeed, we are ourselves a temple to the Lord. We are a holy temple to him. So he will fulfill his promises here in the branch. Let's go back. Christian is a priest before God in the same way that we are descendants of Abraham's blessing. A Christian is a priest before God in the same way that we are descendants of Abraham's blessing. You are not Levites. You aren't. You're not Levites. Levites existed and they still exist. You're not a Levite. But you are a priest, a royal priesthood before the Lord, according to 1 Peter. You are given the distinction as a holy nation separate from the Lord, but you are not At the same time, ancient Israel. You aren't. You're different. That difference is Jesus Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit. You are, there is a distinction. Abraham's blessing of the stars in the sky. You are not Israel. And yet, you are grafted in and adopted into Israel. As part of Israel. Try to wrap your mind around that one. That's a good one. You are not Israel, and yet you are grafted into Israel. Be careful, Christian, just be careful when trying to nail down as concrete something that Scripture treats fluidly. Be careful when trying to nail down. It doesn't mean you can't do it. Just be careful when you're trying to nail down something as concrete that Scripture treats fluidly. Be careful. So we see here, these beautiful truths, behold the day is coming when I will fulfill my promises, and then that verse there that verse sixteen in those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell secure will dwell securely, and this is the name by which it will be called the Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. How beautiful it is when we meet the branch of Jesus Christ and we are entered into the city of God. We are made a part of the kingdom of God and we are covered in the righteousness of Christ. There is much to be said here. There's a ton to be said here. This morning we're going to focus on this idea that Jesus Christ has redeemed and rescued and you get to be part of the righteousness of Christ. The Lord is our righteousness. The Lord covers us. Jehovah Sikkeno is everything to me. Jehovah Sikkeno is everything to me. He is our righteousness. He is our life. The Christian is identified by the righteousness of our king priest who died on the cross and rose again that we would have life. The king priest who came as a child, lived a perfect life for your sake, that you would be redeemed and rescued. The Christian is identified with the righteousness of Of Christ, like the story of Joshua in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 4, when God takes the dirty robes of Joshua and replaces them with the righteous robes of Christ in order for him to stand before God. You, Christian, are given the righteousness of Christ. So now we have the king priest here, the prophecy that. He will never lack a a king on the throne or a priest to give sacrifice. And all of this is based on his character. Let's read together verses 19 and following. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that the day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David and my servant may be broken, so that he shall not have a son on the throne, and my covenant with the Levitical priests. My ministers, look at this. God looks at Jeremiah and goes, Jeremiah, I know you're nervous. I know you're afraid. I know you're dealing with some stuff. I know you're struggling. He says, "Can you keep the sun from coming up and the moon from coming up? Can you can you stop the rotation? Of it? Can you do that? If you can end that covenant that I have with all nature, if you can stop that, then my covenant." can be stopped too. The point God is making to us is I keep my covenant. There's no way for you to break it. When Jesus Christ has moved in your life and taken you and said you're mine, you cannot take yourself from his hand. When Jesus Christ has said you belong to me and he's called your name, you cannot lose this. You cannot cease to be His. When Jesus Christ has made a promise to you, it will be fulfilled. When Jesus, when God, when Yahweh has made a promise to His people, it will be fulfilled. Do not think that He is slow. Do not think that He has failed to answer His promise. He has not failed. He is patient, waiting, not desiring that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance in Christ Jesus. He is is waiting. He is patient. Though we do not see the stars of the sky as beautiful as we ought, the clouds will part and they will be proven to be there. He is there. He He does not break His promises. You cannot overrule God's covenant. Look at verse 22. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured. He lists both. The promise made to Abraham of the stars in the sky and the promise made to uh, Isaac and Jacob of the sands on the seashore. He lists both. Genesis 12 and Genesis 22. He lists both of them. Both of those. In the promise of Jesus Christ, there are stars in the sky heavenly lives that cannot be numbered, that are descended from Abraham. And in the promise that God made to Abraham, there are sands of the seashore that are his people, that are like his people. God will multiply his people. He keeps the covenant of Genesis 22, verse 17, and of Genesis 12. He keeps the covenant, they're the same, by the way, he keeps that covenant mentioned those two times. He keeps it. I will multiply it, he says in those passages. God keeps his covenant. Indeed, we are watching as stars in the sky descended from the blessing of Abraham, those who have received the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are watching as that takes fruit in our world, even now. When someone comes to Christ, we are seeing God multiply His kingdom. And finally, we, want, we read here, So I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and the Levitical priest who minister to me. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not observed? These people are saying. This people rejected the two clans that He chose. The Lord has rejected the two clans that He chose. Thus, they have despised my people so that they no longer so that they are no longer a nation in their sight thus says the lord i have have i not established i have not i'm sorry if i have not established my covenant with the day and the night and fixed the order of heaven and earth then i will reject then i will reject the offspring of jacob and david my servant and i and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes, and I will have mercy on them. At the end of the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, we see a temple made new. We see the law presented again, and we see a people who need a priest, king, prophet to come be in their midst. And at the beginning of the book of Matthew, we have a king. At the beginning of the book of Mark, we have a prophet. At the beginning of the book of Luke, we have a priest. We have all of these things that come. Indeed, John chapter 1, verse 1, the divine word of God That was God himself comes. We have God himself who comes as our prophet, priest and king to rule in our hearts and reign over everything as king of glory and to set everything right in Jesus Christ. We find this answer that Jesus has come and redeemed and the world may look at us and say that the Lord has not fulfilled his promise. And we can look at them with confidence and say, yes, he has. That promise has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And indeed, the days are coming. There are more days. And he is going to come a second time. And on that day, there will be rejoicing for the people of God as he returns to claim his bride. Oh, that everyone we know would be among them as we share the love of Jesus Christ to everyone that we meet. Lord, we pray that you would be delighted in us